You are listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FM LP, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. I, I, I believe that it's fundamental to any real health care in the United States is we have to delegitimize the Cleveland Clinic, Mass General, Johns Hopkins. Those are not the institutions that are creating the most health for the most, for the least dollars, right? They, they, they're very good at the highly specialized stuff that they do, but that's not a, mostly what we need in, from our healthcare system. And to the extent that we can shift the conversation around from who has an insurance entitlement to go to Johns Hopkins to how can we get Johns Hopkins to better serve the community and create some real community benefits rather than, um, catering primarily to uh, rich medical tourists from abroad. Um, That was Philip Longman, author of The Best Care Anywhere, a book about the Veterans Administration healthcare system. We will hear more from Mr. Longman and another author and expert on the VA, Stephen Chernesky, as we discuss the opportunity the VA healthcare system gives us, the United States, to take on the COVID pandemic, if anybody would figure that out. All right. Well, my name is Jim Wolgermuth, and I'm here via Zoom with co-hosts Tom Gross and Harvey Bennett. We are the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans, allies, whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using our experiences and lifting our voices for the causes of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Our network is comprised of over 140 chapters worldwide. Our radio show is on, a, on stations across the country. You can get a copy of the show by just going to our Facebook page, searching Veterans for Peace Chapter 089. Uh, and to find any of our shows, just go to um, bit.ly slash VFP Radio Hour. Now, let me go through that. Bitly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital V-F-P. And then regular print, Radio Hour. And if you have any questions, you can just send us a text at 703-403-6135. All right. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. So go Green green Party, Tennessee.org. Happenings. All right. If you're in Tennessee, early, early primary voting has already started. The election is August 6th, but get out and vote. Also, the occupiers at Ida B. Wells Plaza, uh, Ida B. Wells People Plaza, are still at the base of the Capitol. They're still there. They can always use supplies and participation. If you want help, if you want to help them, send me a text at 703-403-6135, and I will get you in touch with the right people. They're doing good work there. Okay, so before we get to our discussion about the Veterans Administration healthcare system, we lost two civil rights icons on Friday John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. Oh, yeah. Yeah, two wow. giants. 
Probably without them, Martin Luther King isn't MLK. And they were both they were both in Nashville. Yeah. yeah. And they were both really engaged in what King was doing. And uh, you know, John Lewis, uh, besides being a very religious person, he was quite an agitator even within, you know, the freedom movement because he didn't want to back down when when MLK was saying, "Hey, let's cool it for a while." Yeah, they had to. They had to uh, censor his speech there at the yeah. Washington Mon uh, Lincoln that, Memorial. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But so, even when they were negotiating for the the uh, Civil Rights Act, I you know he was trying to make sure SNCC didn't you know create a diversion. Right, and and SNCC, he was one of the leaders. He was the leader of SNCC for a while, and we're talking about uh, John Lewis. Um, I think Marion Barry was the first leader, possibly, and then John Lewis was the second leader, and then he was followed up <laughs> by Stokely Carmichael. Yeah, if I can recall. And so, yeah. uh, I mean, but I would say that SNCC had its biggest impact under the leadership of John Lewis, would you think? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so we'll play these two clips. I got, um, they're both about uh, two, two and a half, three minutes long um, that memorialize uh, both C.T. Vivian and John Lewis. Uh, of course, uh, we need to do something right away, but we might also want to consider just talking about their contribution later on, uh, and, you know, because we've also lost Elijah Cummings earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. um, yep. the clip I've got for John Lewis is, with regard, it's a trailer to a Netflix movie that has just come out a, a month old. It's called John Lewis, Good Trouble. Mm. Yeah. That's, uh, I think that he's using that for his foundation uh, name now. My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, yeah. not just, yeah. say something, yeah. do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. He was always different than every member of Congress. Everybody knew what he had done. He was John Lewis. We're marching today to dramatize to the world that hundreds and thousands of Negro citizens denied the right to vote. Congressman Lewis gave us the blueprint to organize and to legislate. The reason why he's effective as a leader is because he's lived it. We made a decision to march in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion from Selma to Montgomery. You are ordered to disperse. This march will not continue. I was hit in the head. My knees went from under me. I thought I was going to down the bridge. If John Lewis, as a 19, 20-year-old, wasn't doing what he did, I would not be here. We will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have drawn here today. The whole time he was in the movement, it was frightening, knowing the danger, knowing what could happen. You cannot replace a John Lewis. He's the most courageous person I ever met. Too many people struggled and died to make it possible for every American. 
Tucker to exercise their right to vote. He challenges the conscience of the Congress. Bring common sense gun control legislation to the House floor. Forty years later, John Lewis continues to inspire us. Are you with me? Let me hear you. Three civil rights workers that were murdered for trying to help people get registered to vote are looking down on us. This is a time for action. That's what I learned from John Lewis. Their forces in America today want to take us back, but we're not going back. We're going forward. That was the soundtrack of a wonderful documentary that you can find online. Just look up John Lewis, Good Trouble. Now, C.T. Vivian. You know, Harvey, being from Pennsylvania, I did not really hear about C.T. Vivian until I got here. Because oh, yeah. because I became familiar with what he did, uh, thanks to Catherine's <clears throat> interviews. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? She and uh, her friend uh, Rachel. What's Rachel? I can't remember Rachel. Rachel, yeah, Rachel Lawson, who worked for uh, for worked for Bill King, who was the. Uh, millionaire who funded the Nashville room. And okay. he, was, he was the reason there was a civil rights room in, in that library. And he, uh, Rachel Lawson worked for him and she and Kathy and Rachel interviewed C.T. Vivian together. And Kathy says that that interview is out. So uh, it, I, it, there's the iconic picture of Diane Nash confronting the mayor after they marched from TSU down to City Hall after the bombing of uh luby's house <clears throat> luby's house and uh ct vivian is standing right next to her and right he, he was he was he was just and of course he was really tall he was a very imposing figure yeah and uh he's in, he's in, he was everywhere you know he was yeah. always in the middle of it and we did get to spend time with him we went out to sweats with him and a bunch of other folks and he he was so friendly and just loved to talk a lot because i got a clip a memorial clip that was put together by oprah and i thought well there's one from cbs there's one from abc but all things considered i'll take the one from oprah and it's really good because it has his voice we're willing to be beaten for democracy and you misuse democracy in the street you beat people bloody in order that they will not have the privilege to vote Reverend C.T. Vivian first met John Lewis in 1960 at one of several nonviolent strategy workshops taught by James Lawson. When Jim Lawson came to the city, he began to organize students. We began to understand the philosophy behind it, the tactics, the techniques, how to, in fact, begin to take the blows and still respond with some sense of dignity. By 1963, Vivian was appointed to Dr. King's executive staff. Dr. King called him the greatest preacher that he'd ever heard. When unrest first erupted in Selma, Dr. King sent C.T. Vivian to the tumultuous Alabama town to be his eyes and ears. This is not a local problem, Jeff. 
This is a national problem. You can't keep anyone in the United States from voting without hurting the rights of all other citizens. Democracy's built on this. This is why every man has the right to vote, regardless. C.T. Vivian's nonviolent beliefs were tested when he was attacked by County Sheriff Jim Clark. Bruised and beaten, C.T. Vivian says he was never tempted to fight back. This disturbing footage on the Selma courthouse steps captured the attention of the nation. If we're wrong, why don't you arrest us? Why don't you get out in front of the camera and go on? It's not a matter of being in front of the camera, it's a matter of facing your sheriff. So with the loss of those two icons, the burden is just a little bit greater for the rest of us. But it does give other people, and people we've had on the show, like Justin Jones or Timothy Hughes, LaShawn Oliver, Benny Overton, Zalfat Swara, Beth Foster, and so many others that we've met along the way as activists, gives them an opportunity to fill the void. Or maybe you. Maybe you can fill it. All right. So, on with our discussion of the VA medical care. Harvey sat in on a Zoom uh, that talked about the VA. The host and moderator is Brett Copeland. And after you listen to this abridged version, we will try and break it down. We meaning Harvey, Tom, and me. Thank you for joining the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute uh, for our discussion today on potentially a fifth mission for the VA. Uh, this week, we reached a pretty grim milestone. Uh, 100,000 Americans have died of COVID-19. And even that number is probably an undercount from what the true cost of it has been. And when the global pandemic hit the United States, we saw hospitals unable to keep up with the surge of patients. But at the same time, many large hospital corporations were laying off workers due to loss of income um, from elective surgeries being halted. And at one point, America's private healthcare system uh, was so overwhelmed that some health, corporate healthcare lobbyists were begging President Trump for the VA to implement its fourth mission more quickly. Uh, so what is the fourth mission? What are its other missions? Uh, primarily, the VA has three ongoing missions. The first is, of course, to deliver care to veterans. The second, um, it is a research powerhouse based on its integrated nature, the number of patients that it has in one network, um, and the way that they can study and research uh, has led to some pretty incredible innovations over the years uh, in healthcare. Its third mission, the VA has trained an incredible number of healthcare professionals across the United States. I think about 70% of doctors have actually received some training in the VA at some point in their but the fourth mission, the one that was implemented earlier this year, um, is about the VA responding in crisis situations like the global pandemic as the emergency healthcare system for the civilian population. So we know that this crisis isn't over yet. It will probably be continuing for a long time, especially as we start to uh, look down the road as a potential vaccine is developed, but that's gonna take a while. So what we want to talk about today is how can the Veterans Health Administration be strengthened to better serve veterans, but also the rest of us as this crisis continues. 
So to help us answer these questions, uh, we have brought in two leading veterans healthcare writers and just veterans healthcare experts uh, at large. Philip Longman is a VHP advisory board member. Uh, he's the policy director over at the Open Markets Institute, a lecturer at John Hopkins University, and a senior editor at Washington Monthly. He served on the Commission on Care, which is a federal panel uh, that was charged with creating a strategic plan for the future of veterans healthcare. He's written extensively on the topic, including his book, Best Care Anywhere, Why VA Healthcare Would Be Better for Everyone, uh, which is now in its third edition. Uh, Stephen Tronowski is the author of Beyond the Iron Triangle, Implications for the Veterans Health Administration in an Uncertain Policy Environment. So gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. So over the last three months, we've seen the incredible vulnerabilities of the American healthcare system really exposed with COVID-19. At a time we needed uh, a surge of healthcare providers, you know, hospitals began to lay off staff. Additionally, a lot of the stimulus or bailout money has gone to big uh, hospital corporations, but a lot of smaller practices across the country are pretty much facing closure. Do you all think this is a moment of reckoning for the American healthcare system? And what do you think the VA's role is in this going forward? I have been trying to make the case for a long time, uh, including in my book, Best Care Anywhere, that the VA needs to expand. It needs to uh, uh, not spend so much effort excluding veterans, but welcoming veterans of all stripes and kinds. And that maybe it should even uh, expand to a larger fifth mission, which would be to be a government uh, owned and operated healthcare delivery system for um, parts, at least of the general population. Uh, I, I have to say, frankly, that over the last two or three years, uh, I've become so discouraged about, or have become so discouraged about the VA, its reputational problems that arose from the 2014 pseudo scandals, um, the inability of the mainstream media to really be able to get the story of what the VA was doing and how it was a quality leader. Um, uh, our new president, all these things just made me feel like there was not much purpose in my putting much more effort into working the VA cause. But I do now see things coming together that at least open the possibility that we're in a new moment in which the, the Overton window, so to speak, the, the realm of the possible is, is widening. Um, and Brett, you, you mentioned a, a couple of the really important things. One is we've had a national teach-in on how important it is to have surge capacity in the hospital system. Uh, we've been busy for a generation shedding hospital beds, rationalizing so-called the, the healthcare delivery system in the name of efficiency to the point where we basically are running at 100% capacity all the time um, <clears throat> and had no ability to ramp up for pandemics, emergencies of any kind. And huge parts of the country were just losing access to healthcare altogether, particularly rural America and many parts of inner city America. So we've now learned that that's a bad thing. And we've also learned uh, from a generation experience that the private market will not maintain that search capacity on its own because it's not profitable. Um, even so-called nonprofit hospitals have to <clears throat> mind their margins and, and 
when they do, they try and get rid of as much capacity as they can. So this surge capacity is in the nature of a public good. It won't be provided any other way but through a public entity, I would argue. Um, we've also had a national teaching on the, the limitations, the severe limitations of our employer <coughs> sponsored healthcare insurance. You got 23 million people just lost their jobs, right? They lost their healthcare with it, right? We have a huge problem of access. We've also had this huge teaching about the, uh, the inequalities and inequities of the healthcare system itself, right? It's, it's kind of epitomized by this moment when Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, uh, you know, hospital to the rich and famous, you know, chartered uh, uh, Warren Buffett's private jet to fly over to China and uh, <clears throat> load up on PPE, you know, while in Queens, uh, the local community hospital is just overwhelmed as healthcare workers are, are getting killed uh, for lack of PPE. So the in inequities within the hospital system itself between the high prestigious, high prestige, high margin hospitals um, that do so little to actually serve their local communities and sort of heroic frontline hospitals that um, have been doing an amazing job. So this, this inequity, all this is coming together, I think, to create a moment where if those of us in the, who are friends of veterans health care can, can seize it, I think we have a moment where we can begin to uh, have some traction on our ideas for expanding and reforming VA healthcare that just were not there before. And Steve, do you think that this is this is the same kind of moment along with Phil? Um, do you think the VA, in addition to that, do you think the VA was ready um, after years of kind of being assaulted by Congress and uh, privatized over and over again? I've been looking at these issues for probably the better part of a decade with uh, various jobs I had at DHA and also in 2014 when uh, the department selected me uh, to go away for a year of focused research and writing. And that's where I had, had wrote that monograph, where I had, had grappled with what I had encountered as an employee and the destabilization that was occurring um, in what had been a very stable post-World War II policy consensus. Uh, and for those who haven't read the monograph, uh, it was the, the, the abrupt change after about 2010 uh, in the congressional discourse surrounding the VA, uh, the diminished uh, influence of the veteran service organizations uh, to, to push their agenda uh, and the agenda of, uh, of, of their, their membership and their leaders uh, as they had been able to do for 60 years, uh, pretty much unchallenged. Uh, the, the change in the veteran distribution uh, around the country as we close in on 50 years almost uh, since we went uh, to the uh, all-volunteer force from the hybrid draftee volunteer force. And the fourth was the influence of private uh, healthcare actors uh, into a policy space which uh, had remarkably little of that uh, as far as lobbying or corporate expenditures. Uh, so those were the things that I had uh, identified as, as the big changes. What this shows, uh, this situation shows, is, is as, as Phil had said, the uh, importance of the surge capacity but it's more than just the surge capacity. It's, it's, it's the physical infrastructure as well as the personnel. And in my other part of my life, I'm a you know, Lieutenant Colonel and a, a commander in the Army Reserve. And you know, we bring infrastructure physically with that, but the personnel are borrowed uh, from other places within the American healthcare system. And I know that was a tremendous issue we had with identifying very recently providers who you know, we could surge forward to locations in the Northeast uh, because um, that would rob Peter to pay Paul by taking someone out of, uh, out of an existing facility where they were 
providing uh, providing uh, critical care. Um, speaking on the fifth mission, as Phil said, I, I think what makes this moment unique is to keep the value of that infrastructure has been seen, but with the changes in the distribution of the American veteran population um, over the past 40 years, um, the areas where we may need that infrastructure the most um, are also the areas where we are seeing an acute um, uh, vanishing of uh, the existing veteran population uh, to serve. And so how do we maintain that infrastructure? How do we maintain that surge capacity? How do we maintain those research programs and those academic affiliations with, with top tier uh, uh, medical schools and research universities? And that's where we may have to look at what are the other models to be able to, to maintain that case volume and also that, that, that density of patients needed uh, to preserve that infrastructure. The 2008 financial collapse, we saw a lot of veterans moving back into the Veterans Health uh, Administration after they suppose, you know, they lost their employer-based insurance. Do you think that we're going to see a similar move now uh, based on the COVID layoffs? And is there a role for VSOs to really advocate for their members here? Well, I'm, I'm sure it, we will see a surge if we haven't already of 12% of veterans now are unemployed. Um, the question is, um, what's going to happen to them when they present to the VA, right? Um, one of the ironies here is that we've gone through this long season of outsourcing more and more VA care to the so-called community care, <laughs> or care in the community, and yet care in the community is being hollowed out, you know, particularly in the areas of rural America. <laughs> and uh, so, and, and even, even in places like, let's say, uh, in the zip code that contains the Cleveland Clinic, right, in, in East Cleveland, right, is an officially, a federally designated medical shortage area and a federally designated primary care shortage area, right? The Cleveland Clinic basically runs as an intercontinental hotel on its campus in which it uh, hosts uh, various members of the Saudi royal family when they need a body organ replaced, but is basically doing nothing to for the larger community uh, that surrounds it. And so, <laughs> the idea now that we can we can continue to outsource VA healthcare to to a <laughs> a, a, a private system that that's basically in extremis and shrinking fast. By the way, it's another thing we haven't mentioned is that. Because of, the, because of the financial duress that was pre-existing for many hospitals, um, but now it's been exaggerated by the, by the COVID crisis and the loss of elective surgery, we're gonna see a more rapid decline in the number of, of private hospitals available to which you could outsource. So um, all that, again, is part of the sea change in, in the world. Another thing we haven't mentioned too is, as a sea change is that uh, because there are so many hospitals, rich and poor alike, that uh, are now presenting to Congress saying, we need a bailout, right? We have an opportunity, whether we'll take it, I don't know, but we have the opportunity to put conditions on those kind of, of bailouts, um, as we did with banks and car companies and railroads and others, right? And so there's an opportunity here to, that we've got the, we've got the, uh, private sector sort of in a uniquely vulnerable position here 
for, for where it was. So um, I guess in, in short, yes, we'll see a lot more people, um, veterans applying, but at the same time, um, as, as Steve mentions, we have an incredibly vanishing veterans population. So in other parts of the system, we'll have challenges in, in maintaining safe volumes of care unless we open it up to more people. Um, so there's a clinical case for doing that, and there's also a political case, um, which I think, uh, again, we, we need to put our heads together and figure out how to seize this moment. You want to kind of comment about what role the veteran service organizations potentially play in this moment, or if they even see this as their fight? Sure. Uh, before I answer that, I just want to back up a little bit on the, the, the initial question. Um, yes, the unemployment rate is certainly going to drive the, the user piece on the veterans, uh, but I think this is a, a, a longer arc of an issue uh, going back with really the fundamental change of uh, the relationship between uh, employees and the employer-based health insurance. Um, we have among the Iraq and Afghanistan veteran, uh, you know, veteran generation already uh, some of the his highest historical user rates or penetration uh, into using VA services compared to, to previous conflicts. And, and a lot of that's attributable, again, to the types of changes uh, in, in the employer-based uh, uh, health model, uh, the type of, uh, you know, Blue Cross, you know, coverage that someone coming back from, you know, Vietnam in 1969 or 1971 taking a job is fundamentally different uh, than the gig economy and, and the episodic type of employment that I can tell you as a commander, I know all, you know, personally all too well uh, coming today. So I just wanted to, to highlight that. And also uh, there's a, a larger uh, surge in disability claims uh, as well. Uh, just the culture of the military has changed for, for good or for bad, uh, where that's now seen as a kind of a norm to file for, uh, where it maybe ha had not been uh, 40, 50, 60, uh, 60 years ago. Do I see a role for the VSOs? Absolutely. And uh, so uh, the, the larger health policy community uh, in Washington and certainly in Congress uh, have largely been divorced uh, by discussions about VA. And that goes for its tremendous successes as well as uh, some of its stumbles. And so engaging, uh, you know, the members uh, on the Energy and Commerce Committee, which oversees pretty much all of healthcare delivery in the United States, or the Ways and Means Committee, which oversees all of healthcare financing through Medicare and Medicaid, uh, that could be one way uh, where, where different uh, stakeholders could potentially uh, uh, be engaged. And I think also highlighting the importance of the fourth mission uh, is another uh, so what uh, to those areas that we're, we're seeing um, uh, the shrinking of the veteran population. Um, there's a political science term about uh, political issues. Uh, and one is called a universal externality issue. That is an issue that applies virtually equally to all members of a legislative body. And then there's the mixed externality where it applies more uh, to some areas than others. Veterans issues, historically, uh, certainly after World War II, were a universal externality issue. Every district in 1970 had at least 24,000 living veterans. Um, that is certainly not the case today. And now what we're seeing is a lot of the veterans issue with certainly self-selection on the committees that oversee the VA. Um, they're becoming a lot more like um, agriculture subsidies or um, uh, military uh, basing issues or some defense contracting issues where uh, it's, it's impacting some districts and some states more than others. Um, and of course, every district has veterans that live in them, but there just comes an inflection point as, as, a, as a member of Congress um, with a, a limited staff of, you know, how much um, time and bandwidth and energy uh, you can uh, 
put to something that's really a, 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 a of diminishing uh, benefit or um, of interest uh, among uh, your constituents. So something that BHPI called for in an April column that we published uh, at the Hill was expanding, like what uh, Phil has said, uh, expanding healthcare to veterans and their families for a long time. But that was also something that was in the American Legion's platform for a long yeah. time, wasn't it? Yeah, the American Legion, uh, going back, I think at least a decade, is has been at every one of their annual conventions. They they've had a taken a vote on their legislative agenda and opening up VA healthcare to spouses of qualified veterans um, has been part of their part of their agenda for a long time. Um, uh, I mean, this is different. This is generational change, right? Because some of us are all to remember. You know, uh, Secretary Dorinsky was it in the first Bush administration that dared to broach this idea and got railed out of Washington instantly. But um, at least elements of the of veterans service organizations um, see the wisdom of this, um, and it makes sense. It makes it makes clinical sense. You know, you just think of a seventy or eighty year old veteran and his wife. Uh, they have all kinds of comorbidities, and and it's difficult for them to get to the hospital or to the doctors. So it, it makes clinical sense to treat them as a couple and teach them help to help each other, right? And it also it also makes fiscal sense because we know that VA healthcare outperforms Medicare, uh, both on cost effectiveness and safety and patient satisfaction. So so it's kind of a win-win. Um, I think you know there are real concerns that. Uh, particularly disabled veterans have about getting crowded out of the very special features of VA hospital or VA care that are uh, specialized to their needs. But I think that's something we can, we can work with. Um, it also, it's important in terms of political packaging. It doesn't have to be presented as opening up the VA to non-veterans. It can be, uh, we have this veterans hospital um, People are talking about how we need to close it because it doesn't have enough patients anymore. Uh, rather than closing it, maybe one wing of it now becomes rededicated to a, a newly branded but closely related healthcare entity um, that employs a lot of VA people and uses VA protocols of care and probably VA information systems and all like that. But you know, as you can go to a VA hospital and get TRICARE, use your TRICARE card, you might be able to go to this part of the VA uh, hospital and get care that's not specifically for uh, veterans with service-related disabilities. Um, Looking long-term, kind of, as we continue to deal with COVID-19, Steve, you know, after 9-11, can you tell us a little bit about how emergency responders were built into or had their care provided to them, and which is a, a very interesting uh, legislative history that in the uh, Williams Adroga 9/11 uh, Survivors Bill, the public law number escapes me right now. That actually is a provision in that law that uh, VA had never opted to execute, uh, but VA did have uh, was granted um, authority uh, in that law uh, to treat um, registered under the the 9/11 uh, uh, responder registry um, and, and provide care to them. Uh, and that was, uh, I was up in the chief of staff's office at DHA when that had happened. And that was just a very interesting uh, uh, possibility. Uh, certainly it could have been a mechanism 
um, to maybe shore up uh, some of the, uh, uh, the case volume concerns and, and patient density issues maybe in the New York area, uh, but also other, other parts of the country. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's an interesting model, but again, that would be something that would have to be, that would be something that would have to be uh, legislated. Uh, there's, there's some discretion on the VA side uh, to manipulate um, eligibility, uh, potentially with different categories of veterans, uh, but, but new non-veterans, uh, that, uh, that would definitely require uh, uh, some, new, uh, some new authorities. Uh, but as Phil had said, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different options, um, and they can't be applied equally, just because as we saw with Phoenix and some of the access issues, um, availability, uh, excess capacity does not e exist equally across the system. Uh, but, but certainly uh, TRICARE beneficiaries making a, a more uh, uh, aggressive uh, uh, use of that ability uh, would certainly be, uh, be, be a way to potentially uh, uh, bring folks into the system. And this is something uh, VA has been thinking about for a very long time uh, with its academic affiliates. Uh, and, and the term used at the time was joint ventures. And they would, was, the idea was this holistic delivery system where we would partner with our academic affiliates where many of our providers have faculty appointments. And even if the, the veteran family was not being treated by a VA provider, we could have locations where the VA clinic uh, through a single door was embedded, right? So the whole family uh, was getting a holistic uh, care that uh, may, may or may not have been by a VA provider, but it was the idea of, of merging those, uh, those two things together. So that joint venture concept uh, with the academic affiliates, that would certainly be uh, an option to kind of get towards what I think you're talking about you know, in those areas like the Sun Belt, where um, just the limitations of capacity infrastructure right now uh, would just prevent uh, taking people uh, within our own doors. One point of information about that, when, when I was on this uh, CARES Commission, I tried to persuade my fellow commissioners to endorse a platform in which we would create a statutory authority for, for this, and I could not get a majority, but I did get, uh, and it has the force of law if anybody wants to take it up. It, it gives the secretary the, the uh, right to, to uh, at his discretion, to study where in the country this excess capacity exists. And when, he, when and where he finds it, he has the power in, in order to, to do pilot projects. It's the language that became law. Pilot projects to, to experiment with a civilian VA type project. So with the right with the right secretary and the right administration, that might be a vehicle. And as we as we move further along the path of this joint uh, VA DOD electronic health record, uh, the importance of this for continuity of care uh, on the DOD side is, is I, I think is going to going to force that closer examination. Uh, you know, we have um, hundreds of thousands of, of service members and families all over the country in, in what you know, we call TRICARE remote where they're physically, you know, beyond 40 or 50 miles from a military treatment facility. And while some of them uh, do utilize the VA, uh, the, the lion's share do not. And so there is a loss there, even for the service members in readiness about the integration of the, the, the you know, our, the longitudinal health record and the ability to, uh, to, to track them. So there, there may be an interest as, as the, 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 um, the health record systems get joined uh, to try to keep uh, service members and their families um, within the federal system uh, for that seamless connectivity and, and, and continuity of care. Question. So just as a final question to me, uh, or from me, gentlemen, you know, a lot of the activities over the last couple of months have been about 
essentially helping Americans pay their bills. We're helping healthcare companies pay their bills. But at this point, there doesn't seem to be a big conversation happening about how to remake healthcare uh, in mass. Do you think that's just because we're so close to the crisis yet? Or do you think that maybe that conversation isn't uh, top of mind for a lot of people? Well, I think coming into this crisis, the man in the street, including many policymakers, even quasi-sophisticated people, uh, their take on the U.S. healthcare system went something like this: it's it's the best healthcare system in the in the world, except that it costs too much, and we need to expand access to it. So almost all of our politics of healthcare has been not about the delivery system, it's been about how do we create new insurance entitlements, private and public, to get people into this wonderful system. Now, some of us have known for a long time, <laughs> I especially many people on this call, I'm sure know that, that you know, contact with the US healthcare system is the third leading cause of death in the United States after all cancer and all heart disease. All right, it's, it's a deeply, deeply flawed system. Uh, it's dangerous to come in contact with because of the numbers of medical errors. Um, it's also, it's, it's poorly focused. It's focused on acute care and not on disease management, not on prevention, not on population health, which is why we can spend more money than any other country on the planet per person and get these really pathetic and mediocre mortality tables uh, is because we don't do the kinds of public health, whole person, whole population health. So I think we've gotten a, a huge education, or at least a lot of people have in the last several months, about how when you look at who lives and who dies with coronavirus and where, right, and we see that these huge socioeconomic determinants of health that leave, you know, uh, lower income African Americans, for example, so much more vulnerable to dying from the same disease as other people have, and uh, and how it's not really who gets on the vent and who doesn't that determines who survives, right? Uh, I think I remember seeing a statistic out of the New, a consortium of New York hospitals that the mortality rate of people on the vent was north of 90%. So by the time you're on the vent, it's way too late. And all kinds of people get this disease, get this exposed to the virus, but whether they get on the, whether they come, come acutely ill to the point of needing a vent uh, has to do with things like do they have pre-existing diabetes? Do they have pre-existing high blood pressure? Do they live in poverty <laughs> um, uh, in such a way that they're exposed uh, to the virus? So I think you know part of the attraction to me and many other people of the VA was that it had this public health orientation that you know that looked at the whole veteran, not just one body part at a time, not just at one time, but over the life cycle, and oriented its protocols of care. Um, to treat the whole patient all the time, uh, uh, even when the patient wasn't a patient. So I think there's a chance now that people can begin to understand, right, that it's not, it's not the most high-tech uh, medicine, it's not the most high-rep medicine that creates the most health, right, and that the VA is a pioneer in that sphere, 
And if anything, the rest of the healthcare system has to catch up with the VA in adopting to that model of care. So um, I hope it's great. I mean, I, I, I believe that it's fundamental to any real healthcare in the United States is we have to delegitimize the Cleveland Clinic, Mass General, Johns Hopkins. Those are not the institutions that are creating the most health for the most, for the least dollars. Right, they they they're very good at the highly specialized stuff that they do, but that's not a, mostly what we need in, from our healthcare system. And to the extent that we can shift the conversation around from who has an insurance entitlement to go to Johns Hopkins to how can we get Johns Hopkins to better serve the community and create some real community benefits rather than um, catering primarily to uh, rich medical tourists from abroad. Um, I, I think that that'll be great, but and the, and I do think that that is happening because whereas in many ways frontline healthcare workers today are the new cops and firemen of, of, of what they were after 9/11, you know the new heroes. You can see lawn signs everywhere you go. Thank you to our heroes. Though they are heroes, that's great. But the the corporations that own the hospitals. The corporation is like the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center that continued doing elective surgery over the protest of their own doctors well through the end of March because they didn't want to forego the income. Uh, you know, we're getting more and more stories like that, more and more stories of, of rich nonprofit hospitals that are surprise billing people, right? And so when we get to, we change the conversation to how bad is the American healthcare delivery system and, and get away, not, not abandon Medicare for all as a concept, but understand it's, it's deep limitations. If we have Medicare entitlement to all this current delivery system, we've accomplished, we've, we've fixed some things, some important things, but we haven't begun to fix what's fundamentally broken, which is the healthcare delivery system itself. I, I great points, Phil, all around, and I, I think there, this is an interesting time. I, I think there is that uh, that relooking or maybe broadening the aperture of what uh, the realm of the uh, the possible may look like. Um, outside of, of of the healthcare delivery gaps and the, the haves and have-nots, I mean, I think the situation is really laid bare uh, for a lot of reasons. The just the the indispensability of the VA uh, for surge capacity, uh, the fourth mission, uh, the medical logistics. Uh, powerhouse that it brings, and as well as the, the throw weight that can be added uh, through its, uh, its network of, uh, of academic affiliates. So I think these are all things to its credit. Um, uh, at the risk of sounding, you know, self-serving, um, you know, Dr. Richard Stone has uh, brought some tremendous innovations to take this even further um, as the executive in charge uh, for VHA. Uh, as Suzanne had written that article a couple of uh, weeks ago, um, he identified the gap. He reconstituted the Healthcare Operations Center, which is, as Phil said, this provides an ability to have a, a real-time uh, public health-focused uh, uh, tracking system of, of system capacity, uh, equipment, uh, personnel availability, and, and, and beds uh, from a, a national uh, holistic way. And that was uh, really great. The, the, the challenge, I think, is that while this may be an opportunity, uh, it can also be a missed opportunity. And, and that gets back to a comment I'd made a little earlier where uh, the veterans uh, policy issues are, are essentially ghettoized uh, within the walls of Congress uh, in a way that uh, DOD healthcare or some of the larger uh, uh, private sector systems are, are not. And so the, the challenge is, you know, are those 
are those policymakers going to have a, a seat at the appropriate table where we can, you know, the, the, the lessons learned uh, and the value add of VA could even be, or even discussed? Are they even on the, uh, the menu for consideration? And that would be the, the particular gap. Uh, I, I cannot overstate the, the churn and, and the turnover uh, on those committees. Um, I believe on the Democratic side, there are only three members left um, who uh, were even on the committee uh, when uh, the Mission Act uh, was passed, which is, was a, a massive transformative piece of legislation. So uh, there is a potential loss there of that institutional knowledge and, and, and for that engagement. So while I'm optimistic, I also want to highlight that um, there's also a potential for, for some of this, uh, these great lessons learned uh, uh, to, to fall through the cracks. Thank you. They talk about the potential of the VA, um, of the VA filling a gap that we need to have filled within our healthcare system if anybody would have the will to, or, or the knowledge to actually look at it and make it happen. And I'm thinking, I don't see, yeah, I don't it would see make that happen. It would, it would make sense having that kind of shift just from the aspect of how uh, Medicaid has been uh, destroyed mm -hmm. by that's, a lot of these states. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the major blow on, on rural yeah. hospitalization. Yeah. And, right. and, 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 you know, you've got these vet centers and these veteran hospitals right now that are not filled. They mentioned the one in Palo Alto, which, of course, you have to be rich to live in Palo Alto. So if you want to go to the VA hospital in Palo Alto, chances are you're driving. How far, Harvey? Oh, uh, probably a couple of hundred miles. A couple of hundred <laughs> miles. So, yeah. you know, but that's one thing where they talked about, uh, first of all, expanding VA coverage to all veterans and getting rid of these requirements that they have along the way. And then once yeah. you do that, then consider expanding VA coverage to the veterans and their family. Yeah. And, and then, uh, de you know, depending on where you're at, the possibility of extending VA coverage to, um, to the civilian population. So if you're, so if this could become the public option. Yeah. Yeah. This could be a well, public option. You'd have to kind of, it would have to go in stages. One thing that Suzanne Gordon mentioned, because one of the veterans just said, the VA is for veterans. You know, why should we have to wait, you know, and behind a bunch of non-veterans and shit like that. Uh, and uh, she just said, um, you know, what about these essential workers? Aren't they veterans? I think that, we really uh, have to build on this opportunity. Um, I think that uh, we have an emergency and it's not gonna go away. And even if it goes away, we have a national emergency of hospital closures, as Phil has said, we have a national emergency of the closures of primary care practices. We have a national emergency of people who don't have healthcare. And I think we can make the argument that the fourth mission or fifth mission 
um, really has to be, has to continue. You know, it can't be, I don't know, if they have a vaccine, this is not going to go away. I mean, those hospitals are not going to, if they close, aren't going to come back immediately. The primary care practices aren't going to come back. Um, I think we really have to, I think also a lot of doctors now who were opposed to working on salary or working for the government are sort of looking at their mortgages go down the drain as they sit home, you know, because they don't have anything to do and are would reconsider um, how, how they function in a differently constructed delivery system. I think that, you know, the, the, the veteran who, who raised the issue of, of civilians not being deserving of VA care, there are a lot of civilians out there who are putting their lives on the line, grocery store workers and meat packers and, you know, um, uh, nursing home workers, I mean, and nurses and doctors, and they're crowding you guys out as the new heroes, you know, and these are people who have either no health care or they can't afford their employer-based health care, et cetera, and the VA could, could be a model for them. I think that we need, obviously, if we expand the mission of the VA, and I think we should begin by including all veterans, get rid of all these uh, eligibility requirements let all veterans in, then let their families in. Phil has suggested this. Um, and then, you know, if I were a veteran facing the closure of my hospital, I would rather that hospital stay open by including some civilians than see it disappear from the face of the earth. And I think one of the things people need to consider is this uh, bill that rounds and Joe, Mike Rounds and Joe Manchin have proposed to repeal the Air Commission we can't get into this right now, but this, this commission is, we really need to make the argument now that you cannot afford to lose VA facilities. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln's motto of the VA, to, to the, 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 the serve, he has borne the battle and his, and his widow and orphan has been plucked out of the context of the second inaugural. And Lincoln's whole message was not that veterans are apart from a national healing project, but part of it. And we have that national healing project now, and I think Phil and Steve have really articulated how that mission, how the VA can be part of this national healing project, not just for veterans. Uh, obviously, veterans have to come first, but for, for all of us. And, and I just think they're, I just can't say enough about how interesting and important uh, the message that they've made is. And, and for VHPI uh, and all of us, I really want to thank you. Well, Harvey Time and I continue to discuss the role of the VA and the potential, but we're all but out of time. So we decided we need to call our Congress people about two things. First, here's the switchboard number that you can call to get a hold of your congressman and senator. All right, it's 202-224-3121. Then when you get your representative and senator first, ask them to look into expanding the role of the VA to take on COVID. You can say it is clearly obvious that our private for-profit healthcare system has failed us and that the need for a national healthcare system is more important than ever and that the VA is already established. Just provide the funding and open up the doors. Then the second thing to request is that they support the Sanders Amendment to cut the military budget by 10%. Because you know how these folks like to say, well, where's the money kind of come from? Well, here, here's where. 
So you could take cut the Defense Department by 10% and move that money to efforts to challenge the, this pandemic and the ones that are coming. Okay, that number again, 202-224-3121, 202-224-3121. So there's your assignment. Please, let's all make it happen. So as we finish another show, let us gain inspiration from the men we just lost last week, John Lewis and T.T. Vivian, and let us take up their mantle on their behalf and never let anyone turn us around. Here's Sweet Honey in the Rock. Bye now. Ain't gonna let-